Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'll be talking with Joe Makowicz about her book, Writing Center Talk Over Time, a Mixed Method Study, published by Routledge in 2018. I am I'm looking at an old grain elevator in the port of Superior, Wisconsin, purported back then to be the world's largest. I am looking at old main building building on the campus of University of Wisconsin Superior and at the front archway done in Casota limestone. Now, you will certainly be asking yourself what why exactly am I looking at these things during an episode of scholarly communication and where the book today is about students and tutors? No, I'm not having an off day and I'm not off topic either. Grain elevators, campus buildings, and other things like that are all things about which we talk, about which our language is. And that is the focus of Joe Makowicz's book, Just What Are Tutors and Students Talking About During Writing Conferences? Why should we care? Because the one-on-one talk between tutors and student writers is important, very important. It's what a writing center runs on, you could say. When the talk is good, students are motivated to continue getting better at writing, and student learning improves overall. Also, when a conference between tutor and student ends in mutual understanding so that both can be assured the paper is good, students view their work with pride, and tutors as well and do it even better next time. So, to return to those pictures I was looking at, it matters just who these students and tutors are, as it does equally where these students and tutors meet, and when these students and tutors talk. Joe Makowicz's Writing Center Talk Over Time continues research begun in her book, The Aboutness of Writing Center Talk. And together, these books and much of Joe Makowicz's other work are meeting a felt need in the areas of writing studies and writing center studies, more empirical research, clearer pedagogical aims. In the day-to-day of a writing center, not many of us will have noticed the hmm or the oh a student says in conference, but Joe Makowicz does, and a good thing she does. The meanings behind such minimal responses, that's the technical term, can tell a tutor worlds about what the student is taking in and what the student is not taking in. That's pedagogy and practice. But to attain to that knowledge, we need researchers like Joe Makowicz, who know the techniques of corpus linguistics, who know the handling of discourse analysis, and who know the practice of institutional ethnography. The result is the best applied linguistics. Joe Makowicz, a prolific researcher of writing studies and writer sentence studies, contributes with her book, Writing Center Talk Over Time, another key advancement of the field. Joe Makowicz is Professor of Rhetoric and Professional Communication at Iowa State University. And to judge from her work, her friend and sometime collaborator, Isabel Thompson, has her right, a hard worker, an observant scholar, and a teacher who is sensitive to the student she has before her. 
Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between both. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Joe Makowicz and Writing Center Talk Over Time. Joe, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're interested in the book. Very good. Um, I'm interested in you to start with as a scholar and your background. And uh, what led you into this uh, line of work? Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's, it is a line of work. You've been uh, pursuing this uh, area of research uh, for some time. Could you maybe give us your own background there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin Superior, where the study took place um, for this book. Um, but you know, I was always interested in writing. I liked writing myself. I was a writing center tutor as an undergraduate. So it was something I was always interested in. And then, um, you know, I'm a first generation college student and, uh, I worked really hard as an undergraduate, and I never dreamed that I would get a PhD someday, and um, certainly not one, you know, um, from a prestigious university. But I had a lot of encouragement along the way, and some of that came from the people that I worked for when I worked at a a writing center. Um, So um, there was just always something that was close to my heart. And when I was doing my PhD, I had the opportunity to go gather data, and you know, by that I mean just record conversations between tutors and students. Back in those days, it was on cassette, (laughs) and. uh, and then that was kind of how it began. I wrote my dissertation um, on Writing Center Talk. It was about the politeness strategies that tutors use. And it was really one of one of the first, I think, dissertations on that topic. Um, but it turns out that there was another person um, doing the, uh, very similar work around the same time, and that's Therese Thonis, um, who I've since worked with a little bit on um, on another book project. And um, so anyway, uh, there weren't many of us looking at this sort of talk. And I and now I think that's hap- that's changing. But um, it was always something very fascinating to me because everyone talked about how the talk that goes on between tutors and student writers, that's what really constructs their learning and moves them along in their thinking. But nobody was really studying, well, what are they talking about or how are they saying it? Um, So me and some other people um, started looking closer at that. And that's how it started for me. It was with my dissertation. That's really interesting that uh, talk would become a focus for writing center studies because yeah. uh, 
I, I mean, I guess for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> you think writing center, you think, you know, a text is produced and, right. you know, any linguist would be applying their attention to that. Yeah. Of course, reading the book, it makes perfect sense. And as you say, it, it's it's a way of uh, sort of structuring uh, learning strategies and, and, and it's where the learning occurs. Uh, could you yeah. speak, though, a bit more to this idea of how important talk is at a writing center? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, before me and before others like Therese were talking about the talk that goes on in writing centers, people had studied discourse before in pedagogical settings. Uh, there were studies on classroom discourse. So there were people studying like how a teacher will initiate um with a question, how a student will respond, and then the teacher would give some evaluation or some other kind of feedback. So that's called like an IRE or an IRF pattern. People had studied that. But then in the US and in North America, and then more and more in Europe, writing centers were popping up as these sites where students would come to get help with their writing. But um, and, and so that talk, that sort of pedagogical talk was still going on, was going on in these sites too, but nobody was really looking at it. So the kinds of exchanges that um, teachers or tutors have with students, it's critical to students learning. And I mean, a whole nother project would be how it's critical to tutors learning as well. Um, but uh yeah, no one had really been had been looking at it. So now more and more there's research on how talk scaffolds students writing, how teachers or tutors are able to bootstrap students' knowledge um, towards learning goals or certain learning outcomes. Um, and so what I wanted to do and what the, the lens of linguistics, I think, provides is a way to get really precise and exact about what's going on. And that's what I really loved about linguistics to kind of tie it back to where I came from and what I liked. You know, I started off in studying literature like a lot of people do. But then when I had my first taste of linguistics, what I loved about it was, you know, you can make uh, claims and support them with the language that's actually there and present in a transcript or a recording. And that's what I think more and more people are doing now with classroom discourse, whether it's, you know, the talk among native speakers of whatever language you're studying, in my case, English, but it could be anything, and um, between students and teachers. So yeah, I just think now what linguistics gives us is a lens that allows precision. And it's particularly needed, I think, when we're looking at these sorts of pedagogical interactions. In my case, writing centers could be other sites too. But in my case, writing centers to get really precise about how it is that tutors are scaffolding or are not, but in, in the best cases, are scaffolding students' learning. Mm. And, and and I do want to come back to the methods, I mean, to the subtitle mixed mm -hmm. method, because uh, you, you do have here very precise study and mm -hmm. you are able to make very uh, backed up sorts of um, conclusions uh, and you do so in uh, very convincing ways. But before we come that far, maybe we'll deal with something that's maybe a little bit more English literary. Okay. <laughs> and that is this, this con well, this concept, uh, which doesn't measure so easily, perhaps, this concept of aboutness. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to start off with that because it's also part of what I was trying to bring into the intro with the pictures and so on. The, oh, the yeah. book itself is, is wonderfully il- illustrated. Um, and you get like a real look down the corridors outside uh, the offices of the writing center, mm-hmm. um, the building facades. It, it's just wonderful because you are brought there. You get a history of, of the area of uh, Superior and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Could you tell us what what aboutness is and how you brought it into this particular study? Oh, well, thanks for pointing out the pictures. You know, it's something that I I sort of um I'm not sure I have to say like I argued for them. I, there wasn't a ton of pushback, but maybe it wasn't exactly obvious of why that they they would be included in the book or why I wanted them. But well, yeah, it's obvious I mean, to me, that's for sure. Oh, well, good. <laughs> um yeah, I I think it, you know, we can use aboutness in a couple of different ways. And what I wanted to get at by kind of showing what this town is like, this town where this university is situated, this small, it's a public liberal arts college in a, in a, in a industrial um, town that's maybe a little bit past its prime, um, a, a shipping town, a, a hub of transportation on the Great Lakes. I wanted to give a sense of where this talk was going on because it's talk of a very specific location. And, and that's true of any location, but this is the one that I was studying. Um, so I wanted to give a little bit of background on where exactly these students and tutors were encountering each other. So that was part of the aboutness of this place. Um, but then people also use the term aboutness to talk about more specifically about what a group of texts are about. And so the two, two match up pretty well. And that's what I was doing in the study was talking about, um, you know, what the, the tutors and students, what their talk was about, the aboutness of their talk. So yeah, I guess, you know, I never really thought of it until you said that, but it is aboutness in two different senses, I think, or at least two different ways. Um, Yeah. The talk has a certain aboutness because it is of a certain place and a certain time. It's a very useful term because I mean, it covers more than content. It it, it gives you also context as well. Mm. It, it sort of it, it, the way I was picking yeah. it up in the book, which 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 was the reason I saw for the photos and the history was mm. that context, as yeah. you were saying. Yeah, um, exactly. Great. What? One one thing um, I'd also like before we get into some more details uh, to just give an overview of is writing centers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, have worked in them as a tutor um, mm-hmm. and in other capacities. You've certainly mm-hmm. studied them, um, researched them. Could you give us maybe a bit of a snapshot of the writing center in America now at the moment? What does it typically look like? Who is going there? What would you say most people identify as its purpose? Oh, certainly. Well, and, and I'll just note that there are certainly people who are better historians of the field than I am. But it's something I think that sprung up with um, op- a lot um, with open admissions of the 60s and 70s um, when a lot of people um, came back from war, especially, um, and universities were opened up. And that meant that um, there were more people that maybe needed help with their studies. So more sorts of um, student services were being offered um, in this country. And I think um, in Canada, too. I can't speak as much 
to exactly how writing centers have sort of flourished in Europe. But I know that that trend is going on. Um, Europe and the Middle East, Australia, and other, oh, um, China, uh, certainly Japan as well. Um, so, I mean, it's not just um, a U.S.-centric phenomenon. I, um, um, what else do I want to say about that? Oh, um, yeah, flourishing with open admissions and what goes on in them, uh, kind of like what I was talking about before. It, a lot of times it's one tutor and one student. It doesn't have to be. But a lot of times it's sort of dyadic interactions. Um, a lot of times they're hosed in um, kind of like at UWS, where there's a building kind of devoted to student services, tutoring services, other, um, not other, but clubs um, and um, other sort of auxiliary services of the university. But they don't have to be. Sometimes they're housed in libraries or, um, and now more often than not, um, Writing centers have like um, what they call like satellite locations, where maybe a student only has to um, go down the hall in the dorm to meet with a tutor. So it kind of depends on the size of the university and the resources. But um, you, uh, writing centers now are um, yeah, sort of flourishing in this country, um, and I think elsewhere too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and would you say that uh, as far as the students who are going to uh, the writing center, are uh, they students who would see themselves as having some sort of trouble? Is it something that's holding them back or is it becoming recognized as we've all got to learn how to write? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the latter. You know, I think if um, uh, writing centers would, you know, look at their data, a lot of times they'll see that the students who actually go to the writing center are ones who do really well in their classes. It's the students um, a lot of times who um, who uh, are very motivated um, and want a little bit of extra help or another set of eyes on their on their work, um, but that's not to say that um, writing centers don't serve students, you know, uh, uh, with all sorts of capabilities. And one thing I forgot to mention in my last response too is that they're doing it in a multitude of ways now. Writing centers are offering. Uh, there's writing centers that produce podcasts. They give workshops in classes for all sorts of writers, from students who are doing. Um, uh, you know, your freshman composition or your first year writing courses across all sorts of um, domains. Uh, they work with t- uh, students who are working on um, thesis papers and dissertations. They work with faculty members. There are writing centers that have set up um, community outreach programs. So maybe they're hosed in the local public library and working with um, members of the community. There's just all sorts of of efforts that writing centers are are engaging in now that are really incredible and outside of the scope of where they started um, back in the day. So I think, you know, there might still be some sort of vestige of what they used to write about in writing center research as like the fix-it shop. But I think more so than not, um, the people who use the center are people who are really, um, you know, who work hard in their classes and are, are 
you know, not necessarily like falling behind. These are students who are working really hard and are doing well. Um, and they know that writing is better when somebody else reads it <laughs> and when you get feedback and you can improve it and revise it. So I think that might have started off that way as a sort of fix-it shop. Um, but I think maybe now it's not seen so much that way. At least I hope that's the case. So it seems definitely that perceptions are changing when it comes to what the writing center is there for and who it's there for. Yeah. I mean, even this this outrage I uh, found uh, what, what, that you were talking about, the expansion to yeah. you know, the community, wonderful. I wonder what it is, though, that um, there are certainly writing centers who work generally on communication. And I've seen plenty where um, there's also help on doing presentation skills yeah. or speaking, but it's typically a writing center and writing is at the heart of it. Could mm. you perhaps, uh, again, just <laughs> on this more general level before we get into the book a bit more, yeah. could you perhaps uh, just reflect from your own experience and research on what it is that makes it that writing is so special? Why mm. is it that uh, we need and we do need. Why is it that we do need a center at learning institutions to help people write better? Well, I think, you know, part of it is just the learning process in general and that, um, you know, we what a writing center can do is scaffold students learning. So if a student returns, they're going to um, continually progress Um and tutors can work longitudinally with students across multiple papers. And students will start noticing trends in their own writing, things that maybe they struggle with and ways to improve them. But first, they need somebody to, to help them identify the problems they're having, whether it be, you know, sort of more globally with organization or with support for the claims that they're making to sort of um, what they'd call like, um, like, LOCs or the kind of lower order concerns where you're talking about, you know, um, commas or uh, citation style. Um, so I think, you know, writing is something that demands an audience or that wants an audience. And writing centers can provide that. It, um, it's this wonderful gift to students, this service where you, you get an audience for free. I tell students like, you know, this is something you have to pay for when you're out of a university, but here somebody's going to pay careful attention to what you're saying and try to work with you to determine what is it that you are, that you want to say, because here I'm getting it here. I'm not getting it. And you have this ready-made audience who is trying hard to understand what you're trying to convey and then has some of the expertise to help you say what you mean. And not only that, but give you the tools to determine for yourself later what you mean, to be able to, to get better at saying or writing what you mean. And that's something that we all I mean, I've been writing a lot, quite a long time now, but it always helps to have somebody um, be a critical reader. And I don't mean critical as a negative, but I mean somebody who's paying attention um, to, to what it is you're trying to say and trying to help you um, say it more clearly. And I think that's what um, tutors can do um, because they have that, that expertise. 
I think it can happen even if a person doesn't have expertise and reads your writing. They can tell you, like, I don't get what you're saying here. Um, but tutors are trained <laughs> in the sort of better ways to do that. Um, and they're also trained in the writing process so that they know, hey, we need to look at higher order concerns here. Like, do you have support for what you're trying to claim? Um, is this organized in a way that makes sense? Before we start looking at more sentence level issues, like, does this, should this be a semicolon or a comma? You know, a tutor understands that it doesn't make any sense to be looking at lower order concerns like commas if you're going to need to revise the whole thing anyway to be adding or deleting content. So tutors trained in the writing process um, can help students in a way that someone who's not trained um, can't do as well. Um, And then I think also more and more these days, Tutors are not just English majors. So we have writing center tutors who have backgrounds in psychology or in STEM, like, you know, math or um, one of the sciences. And so these tutors um, bring a sort of subject matter expertise to the writing that they look at as well. And so they are able to not just make sort of general statements, not that it's just general statements, but they're able to talk about the content of what students are saying. And more and more writing centers are welcoming um, tutors with um, more diverse expertise, um, different majors. Yeah. uh, Tutors are central to your book. And you've, uh, in answering my question, said quite a lot about tutors. And I find that uh, to be really at the heart of the writing center. You just mentioned, for instance, that there are writing centers doing workshops and Mm -hmm. podcasts, and I'm sure all of us know our first year uh, college writing classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But could you perhaps say something about what it is that's so effective about the tutoring system? Why does does it seem that so many centers uh, rely on that as their backbone? Well, I think at the heart of it is that one-on-one talk. It's someone who is uh, centered on what you specifically wrote. And I think that's where the writing center talk um, kind of fills in a gap that classroom discourse leaves. Uh, A teacher has, you know, a certain number of students, 15 to 25, maybe in a writing class, but a tutor can concentrate on just that one student. So the talk centers on that one that one piece of communication. And I think that's the main difference is that, that focus, um, on, on what that student has written specifically, and then spending a certain amount of time, be it a half hour or an hour, just talking about it and meeting that student where that student is in that writing. Like some papers need full scale, reorganization. They have omissions. They Students need to add to them or delete from them. So it's like substantive revision. But other papers are farther along in the, in the writing process. You know, maybe we're just talking about, okay, on a sentence level, uh, are my sentences hanging together? Do the parag- paragraphs have transition? Students come to tutors in different stages of this process, and tutors are able to meet them where they're at. In a way, a teacher who's got different responsibilities, you know, just as difficult but different, um, a, a teacher can't do as well. Um, so that it's that one-on-one, one-to-one talk that I think is so critical to a writing center. 
Well, that is our best segue into yeah. uh, some of the more <laughs> re uh, uh, detailed research of, of the book, uh, for yeah. sure. Um, you begin in, in, in chapter two, uh, talking about uh, writing centers and the reality of them and the lore of them. Mm -hmm. We might come back to that because I think what I've just heard is the best direction towards your methodology. Uh, because talk is at the center of what you're doing, and you needed to approach that with the right tools from linguistics. Uh, yeah. In the mixed method approach, we have a corpus. There's some technical terms, so yeah. uh, it would be probably helpful to go slow and give once in a while here and there a particular uh, a term. It's it's definition sure. too, but we have the cor the corpus driven mm -hmm. analysis, which just is really uh, that one I can do. Yeah. <laughs> really bottom up, taking yeah. uh take taking the actual scripts from the conversations and looking at the data, running the numbers, finding the frequencies, and then mm -hmm. coming to um, any sort of analysis. Um, yeah. There's the discourse analysis itself. And then finally, there's the what you were calling the ethnographic approach. Or more specifically, you mentioned it being an institutional ethnography. Would you give us an overview of how you mixed these in your two studies? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so like you were saying, I used what's what's called corpus driven analysis. And that means I did some computations where words um, occurred uh, significantly more frequently um, from the data. And that's this, so I was looking to see what words would occur significantly more frequently. Um, and those are called keywords. Um, and that's opposed to a, a corpus based approach where um, you have certain questions or certain words that you want to study in the first place. And then you do um, an analysis and see where those particular words shake out. So I was doing the, the first kind, that corpus driven approach where I wanted to see without any preconceptions, what kinds of words are arising in this data? Um, what are tutors and students talking about? Um, discourse analysis is the other, uh, uh, the other main method. And that's a method where um, you closely analyze a uh, uh, language. Um, it is often compared with conversation analysis. Um, it's different from that. Um, both of them look at talk on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Discourse analysis is often done with a sort of um, a framework or a scheme for analyzing what's going on in the talk. It also uses um, other methods to triangulate, often interviews with the participants. So discourse analysis is very broad and people use it for a lot of different things, which is fine. <laughs> um, it differs from conversation analysis, though, just to clarify the two in case people are um, confused or have heard of one or the other, conversation analysis is um, often um, the transcription gets way more detailed. A lot of like inhales or exhales or the pitch. It's very concerned with how conversation itself um, 
uh, occurs, how it is an interactional achievement. And for me, I wasn't so concerned with how a conversation is put together. What I was really interested in is, well, how is the learning going on between the tutor and the student? So I sort of had a method of analysis kind of that I was imposing on the data. I was really looking a lot at tutoring strategies that were occurring. So um, I call what I do discourse analysis as opposed to conversation analysis. That might be too in the weeds, but just in case. Um, and then in, in terms no, of- No, that's, that's not in the weeds. That's, that's important. <laughs> I mean, because that's also where the aboutness comes in on the yeah. discourse level. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I was really interested, I'm interested in learning. And so I'm not just looking to see like how a conversation is constructed on a moment to moment basis, although that's totally interesting to me. But I'm interested in what's going on. And that's what you're the aboutness of it. What's going on between the tutor and the student. And so that's a little bit different than conversation analysis. And I use interviews, like you were saying, to try to see what did the tutors think about what happened in the in the interaction with the student? What did the student think about it? Um yeah, and then other interviews as well, such as with the um, the writing center director and the assistant director too, to see like, you know, how were they shaping the training of these tutors? How did that inform what the um, tutors were doing um, in their conferences with students? Those yeah, are the okay, two well, main methods. Yeah, the the corpus discourse analysis, and then the the interviews too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the important part of the study is uh, the time spread that you have yeah. uh, data from 2000 and then from 2017. And, and that brings many of the very interesting results because you can see a development or any kind of not necessarily development, just change anyway. Yeah. Um, if we might, uh, we could start perhaps with chapters uh, five and six where keywords come in. Sure. The keywords of uh, the tutors and the keywords of the students, uh, perhaps you could pick out from either group, it doesn't really matter, one of the keywords as a possibility for showing us, uh, showing the listeners how it is Mm -hmm. that you arrive at an analysis through the numbers and are able to say then this or that is happening. Yeah. So like I was saying, those key words are words that um, arise out of the data. Um, When you take this corpus, uh, it's a a body of texts. And in my case, it was the all of the tutors talk and all of the students talk. And then in two different years, in 2000 and 2017. And so I'm comparing the tutors and the students against each other in these two years. And one thing that I was looking at are what's called keywords arising from um, the, the the text or the, the transcripts that I was studying as compared to a, a reference corpus. So that's where we get the idea of these certain words arise from the writing center talk that are different from this other set of data that represent other talk in the world. So the idea is how does writing center talk, what is its aboutness in comparison to talk that goes on in other places? And so we begin 
to see, oh, okay, this is what shapes the aboutness of writing center talk. And then this book, what I wanted to do was compare how is the aboutness of the talk in 2000 different from the aboutness of the talk in 2017. And that was interesting because the tutor's training changed substantially between those two years. So I wanted to see, can we... Um, can we see any differences? And if we do, it's it's quite likely that it has something to do with the way the tutors are being trained to behave during their interactions, the, the strategies they're being told to use with student writers. Um, and like you were saying, yeah, some of the keywords, a lot of the keywords did change. Um, so for example, one thing that I saw in the tutor talk, well, one thing that everyone I think will kind of under be interested in a little bit was um, the use of the word like uh, changed quite a bit in the tutor's talk. It became a key word in 2017. Um, I think it's interesting because we've all noticed the emergence of like in our talk. And especially, I think we look maybe at people younger than us and hear people saying like a, a lot. Um, so this is um, one change that was kind of interesting in that it was, it was a change that was societal. It was really going on a lot um, uh, in talk in general. And the tutor's talk bore that out, like what became a, a key word, significantly more frequent um, uh, emerging from the data in 2017. But there were other words that I think had more to do with the tutor's training than like. Um, and one of those is the use of the word uh, so in tutor's talk, which became uh, just significantly more frequent in 2017. And so has a lot of um, purposes in talk. But one thing it does is state a conclusion or a result. So one thing, there's there's one now. So one thing that you... We, we have this all on record, yeah. <laughs> I know, We're every, making a transcript afterwards. <laughs> every time you start talking about these things, it's hilarious because you start noticing them in your, in your own talk. Like the way that a lot of people begin explanations with the word so, if you listen to any podcast, and I don't mean you in general, Daniel, but just um, people often use so as a way to begin uh, an explanation, but they also use it more commonly to begin um, to state a conclusion or to state a result of something. So that says something about what the tutors were doing um, in 2017 that maybe they weren't doing as much in 2000. They were um, joining thoughts together, stating reasons, and then basing a conclusion on it. And I actually... Um, kind of expanded on that in a recent article. Uh, it's in review right now, but it's called The So What of So in Writing Center Talk. Um, I just wanted to go a little bit more in depth with how tutors were using so than I had time to do in, in writing the book. So would, um, you, uh, would, you, would you tell our listeners there uh, where that will be published? Well, I'm, it's in the review, or but yeah, but it would be... I, okay, I, well then, that's fine. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I better not not say the title of the journal, but um, okay, okay, yeah, but hopefully that'll be out, and if not, I'll try a different journal. <laughs> so <laughs> it'll be okay. Well, I'm pretty sure it'll work. It's an easy, 
It's an easy title to remember. So, the so what of so. Yeah, yeah. I tried to give it a spiffy title this time because I don't always do that. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I think another thing that kind of emerged from the data, I mean, so many things did, but uh, there were, you mentioned um, minimal responses at the beginning. And um, those are words like, you know, okay and yeah. Uh, so we saw some changes in minimal responses in students' talk, for example. So um, I actually wrote another article <laughs> on these minimal responses to get to dig a little bit deeper. But words like um, okay and yeah and mm-hmm are minimal responses. And they have different levels of how much they signal that the speaker will continue past that minimal response. So when somebody uses mm-hmm, there's a good chance that that person is going to stop talking. There's a good chance that that mm-hmm is used as what's called a back channel, where you're just showing that you're paying attention, but your intent is not to take over the conversational floor. So if you were talking and I said, mm-hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to take over the conversational floor. I'm just showing that I'm paying attention. And so what we, what I saw in uh, 20, 2000 and in 2017, for example, that mm-hmm was always the most key word in the student's talk. So that signals that in 2000 and in 2017, students were doing a lot of um, back channeling, were showing that they were paying attention, but didn't necessarily um, intend to take over the conversational floor. That kind of signals that students, student writers, um, it, it signals in part their institutional role, their clients, they're there to get service, they're there to get help. So it's more likely that they're going to be listening and showing that they're paying attention. So it's not too surprising that that was in both years, the key word, the most key word, even though the tutors in 2017 had received far more substantial training um, than they had in 2000. But we, but you can't see a shift in, in the minimal responses between 2000 and 2017. For instance, um, in 2000, okay was the second most key word in students' talk. But in 2017, the second most key word was yeah. And it turns out that those two words, those two minimal responses, have different levels of how much they signal an intent to continue past that word. So the way we talk about this is mm-hmm shows um, what's called passive recipiency. Mm-hmm shows is way on one end of the spectrum of an intent to talk. It's over on the I don't intend to talk side. Whereas yeah shows what's called speakership incipiency. It says there's a good chance that I might continue this turn past yeah. I can say more. Now, research is still a little, uh, there's not been a ton of work done on how often people extend their turn 
past yeah. But it the research that has been done shows it's at least 50% of the time, whereas it's far lower with mm-hmm. So what that says is between 2000 and 2017, students switched from okay to yeah. And that shows that they did um, there was they were showing greater speakership incipiency. They were more often signaling that they would continue their turn past that um, past that yeah. And so one thing now, I this is actually oh I'm sorry go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to jump in on that point because this mm-hmm. this would actually then be something that a writing center is aiming for, isn't it? I mean yeah. you don't necessarily want it pretty much as in the classroom, that the teacher or the tutor is talking all the time, do you? Oh, absolutely. And maybe I should have led with that. (laughs) Yeah. One of the biggest goals of a writing center tutor is to try to get the student to talk. (laughs) Because there's a great tendency for students to back channel, to show their understanding. And of course, like I said, that's their role. It makes sense that they would do that. But what a tutor wants to try to do in the best cases is to get them to start talking, to try to start, um, to try to start putting words together in what I've called in other research, spoken written language, to try to reshape their words, to orally say the words that would go in their in their papers. So a tutor wants to try to get the student to do that, or just think out loud about what they're trying to say, to try to get them to articulate, like, what is my main point? Or what am I trying to say here? So a tutor's goal is definitely to get a student to talk. It doesn't work all the time. And um, I wrote another another article that's going to be published pretty soon. And it looked at students' long turns at talk. And what I was trying to do is find out like, well, how often are those long turns at talk actually uh, prefaced by a tutor question? Or if they're not prefaced by a question, like what is the tutor doing? And then the other thing I was looking at was like, well, what are they actually talking about (laughs) when they when they go on at length, kind of like I'm doing now. (laughs) So like, yeah, what is the what is the aboutness of their turns, their long turns at talk, or what I called, I was measuring long turns and what I call very long turns or VLTs. Um, and that, that article is going to be published in Writing Center Journal. Um, I'm not sure, but it should be out like soon this year, or maybe early next year. Yeah. So anyway, right, we'll be on the lookout for that. Definitely, oh, I, I have. To, I have. To, <laughs> it sounds very interesting, and, and it certainly uh, gives uh, more background to the to the wonderful findings of your book. Uh, I have to jump in though on this mm-hmm. wonderful term, spoken written language. Oh. I love that. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things that uh, sound like a paradox, are not though. Uh, t- tell us a bit about uh, first off what it is, uh, mm-hmm. just to make that clear, and, and second off, why is it that. Uh, a tutor is actually aiming that a student uh, get involved in that. And how does a tutor perhaps even model that sort of talk? 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah, spoken written language is that um, language that you say orally that has the potential to end up in the text. So one thing that tutors are trying to do is get students to start producing that. Of course, this is going to depend on the stage of the writing that they're working on. So if you're brainstorming ideas for a paper, if you're early on in the writing process, you're not going to be talking about spoken written language or trying to reshape text. This happens more with revising. But a lot of conferences are about revising. Students bring in a paper, they have a chance to revise it for a better grade, so they have a tutor um, look at it, or you know they just bring it in before it's due, and the and the tutor helps them um, reshape the 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 language for clarity. So I call that yeah, spoken written language, language um, that's spoken orally, and tutors um, I think model that as part of the scaffolding going on. And it's really neat when you can see um, a tutor and a student put together a revision of a sentence or a couple of sentences to try to get at what the student means. And the tutor might say part of the sentence and then the student picks it up and the tutor might ask a question. So part of what that tutor is trying to do is trying to get that student to talk a little bit, maybe prompt the student to to finish um, the spoken written language that the tutor has started. Um, the tutor uses all sorts of strategies, like maybe this, the tutor will paraphrase what the student has said, um, and the student might take that paraphrase and, and use it to create spoken written language. Um, yeah, so this happens uh, in the best, I think, when scaffolding is going on and when learning is going on, the student and the tutor are going to co-construct um, meaning for the student's uh, writing. Um, and what obviously what the tutor wants is that it's the student who's producing most of this talk. The, the tutor is just prompting or questioning so that the student produces um, spoken written language um, that, that, that could potentially end up in the paper. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the next step. I mean, just turn around and if you can get some of that down, then you're you're already writing. I mean, exactly. uh, it, it's wonderful that the phenomenon has a name because it is, as you can see, then so, so central and aim mm. to what the tutor is actually out there trying to do. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, one, one other technical area that I'd like to get into, which I uh, found uh, quite interesting in, in the book, is uh, the lexical bundles. Oh, right. And these are essentially just uh, words in a sequence which mm-hmm. um, happen to come together quite often. We use them all the time. Things like, I don't know, yeah. so I don't. I think it's all of these strings of words that no matter what happens before or after them, they stick together. Uh, yeah. What is it that you found through lexical bundles about uh, student talk and, well, uh, t- and, and tutor talk? Yeah, yeah. So what I was looking at there were the most frequent lexical bundles in tutors and students talk. And it's like you said, lexical bundle, bundles are um, collocations of words, words that occur um, frequently together in a in that order. So um, what I did was look at 20, uh, 2000 and 2017 and compared the tutors and the students talk. And I really relied a lot on the work of Douglas Biber, um, specifically Biber, Conrad and uh, Cortez. So if anyone's interested in collocations or lexical bundles, um, they should really take an eye at uh, 
cast an eye at Fiber Conrad and Cortez 2004 because they get into the different types of bundles that occur <laughs> and um, with a lot of specificity. And it's a really great scheme um, to try to understand uh, the different kinds of, of, of collocations or these frequent, these words that bundle frequently together. Um, so what I found <laughs> is that in both 2000 and 2017, the tutors were very frequently using, I don't know, <laughs> but um, it, it, a lot of times, you know, I don't know, bundles frequently together in, in all sorts of talk, not just necessarily in tutors talk. But I think what uh, the change that occurred between 2000 and 2017 was that I saw more of a, a sort of move away from bundles that gave a very um, that showed that the tutor had an obligation to do some, to make some change in their writing. Um, for instance, a, a bundle like you're going to, or you might want to, or what I'm saying, um, those bundles uh, kind of relate to the tutor um, trying to relay a sense of obligation or a directive to the student that you need to change something. What I saw more going on in 2017 was um, uh, the what's called an epistemic stance. So the, the, the stance of the tutor gets softened a little bit. And what we see is the tutor using, I don't know, I don't think, don't know if. Um, so the, the, the tutor's sense that that sense of obligation to comply is mitigated more in 2017. And another change that went on with those bundles is there's a change from like what I'm saying to you're talking about. And I thought that that was a sort of interesting shift because what I think was going on in 2017 was the tutors were becoming more focused on what the student was trying to convey rather than um, trying to tell the student what to do. So that's one of the cool things that a corpus analysis can do. It doesn't just show the key words that arise, but you can actually look at these words that collocate, which is basically just means like co-locate uh, together. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and, and, and we'll say something about what's going on, the aboutness of their talk as well. Um, and then as far as the, the students go, um, just I'm scrolling down to kind of see like where my, where my findings were. To try to get my my I I went over this this morning too to try to remember and the thing was the thing I remembered most about about the findings was that I don't know happened in students talk as well and and that again it's kind of like um the like that occurred with the keywords it it's something that occurs in in all sorts of language. People use I don't know for a variety of reasons, um, but it definitely occurred in the students' talk as well, both in 2000 and in um, 2017. Um, but it's I interesting how it can mean something different depending oh, on who's saying it. As, yeah. as you say, with the, this idea of aboutness, if if a teacher type authority and tutors, despite their training, always remain slightly more in the teacher position, if they say I don't know, it could well be 
this is actually what I think. <laughs> Whereas if a student right. says, I don't know, it's very likely because, that they are know. sort of somehow being, that they're, they're being, you know, they're, they're deprecating. They're, they're saying, yeah. um, please give me a solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing to know about, you know, I don't know is we use it as sort of a, um, uh, uh, it's almost a discourse marker in itself where we use it sometimes to fill time when we're talking. So it, it, it occurs frequently, no matter who's saying, but you're right. The, the, the sense can change depending on your institutional status, like who you, what your role in the conversation. Um, and so the discourse analysis part looks more at, okay, what is the context in which the tutors are saying this or the, or the um, students are saying it? And the other thing that I thought was really interesting in the, the lexical bundles is just um, how often lexical bundles occurred. So I was looking at four word lexical bundles. Um, some corpus linguists say like three is too few words. You get too many lexical bundles and five words is, is too many words because you get too few lexical bundles. So when you're looking at a four, you're looking for four word bundles. When I looked at the 2000 data, I didn't find very many lexical bundles. And that means that students weren't really stringing a lot of words together in their turns at talk. If you can't even find four word lexical bundles, then they're not saying many words in a turn. And so in the 2017 data, I was able to find at least five lexical, four word lexical bundles in the student's talk. And I think that finding in itself is kind of big in that, hey, students were talking more in 2017. Their turns were a little bit longer so that these lexical bundles could occur. Um, yeah, and I think that that's the, 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 the wonderful strength of, of the book, that it relies so heavily on this data and goes into all this detail, and yet it always uh, gives it this triangulation, as you'd said before, of the different methods so we can make sense of that. Um, just what you've said now about the fact that if lexical bundles show up, that means something, right? Yeah. We can we can interpret that. But what what I really loved is that no matter how you crunch the numbers, comma comes up. Yeah. <laughs> we we yeah. really we really are talking about commas all the time. Yeah, <laughs> could, could, less, could you close so, less so in twenty seventeen. True, true. But the little comma comes back, doesn't it? it, it would you back. perhaps close? Would you perhaps close out our, our talk here of frequencies about uh, commas, please? <laughs> yeah. Well, so in 2000, um, I think there were, I was looking at um, kind of what I was calling like writed related words. And in 2000, we saw more writing related words appearing as keywords, like sentence is one and commas another. Commas, um, uh, keywordness, the strength of its keyness, it dropped in 2017, which shows that, okay, um, tutors and students were talking less about those lower order concerns, those LOCs, um, than they were in 2000. And I think that comma is a really kind of neat signal of that, that its importance decreased in 2017, which shows that tutors 
and students were talking about other issues, maybe those higher order concerns about, hey, what is it you're trying to say here? How are you organizing it? What sort of support do you need to make the points? What sort of data do you need to to find or sources do you need to look at? So things that are bigger and more uh, about the message that the student is trying to convey, um, rather than about specific punctuation. Now, that said, student writers are where they, you know, they're, they are where they are and, and they're interested in punctuating their sentences correctly. And they go to someone with some writing expertise to get them to help them <laughs> to punctuate those sentences. So tutors um, certainly do spend time explaining um, sentence structures and how that affects punctuation to students. But I think um, in 2017, with training Tutors do that less than they did in 2000. And that brings us to, uh, as you state quite clearly, your overall objective in the study. And that was, and I quote here, to show how tutor training and a more linguistically diverse clientele contributed to changes in talk at UWS Writing Center. Mm -hmm. And I think this training issue is really quite key. You've you've broached it a few times Mm -hmm. in, in your answers. Could you give us sort of, uh, say, a brief run through what was happening in, in, in your day when you were yeah. a tutor or in the two th- or in around 2000? And, and mm-hmm. what has happened since? Yeah. So I think that the UWS Writing Center isn't very different from a lot of other writing centers in that it's um, the way that tutor training has progressed has changed dramatically. In 2000, and I was a tutor at UWS in the 90s. So it was I mean, it progressed from the 90s to 2000, certainly. But, you know, tutor training was done sort of on the fly when the director had some time. She might sit them down, the tutors down, and talk about ways to interact um, with with students. Um, And in 2017, the tutor training was quite sophisticated. And I think this is the way it is now in a lot of writing centers where tutors um, first do observations of more experienced tutors working with students. They start co-tutoring and and might do that for a, a few weeks. So they actually have somebody there to help them through those tutoring sessions before they're able to tutor on their own. Um, and they also do um, other sorts of training, like training and how to work with students who are not native speakers of the language and maybe um, are still, um, you know, learning um, the language of the of the university, in this case, English. So the tutors in 2017 at UWS, and I think like other writing centers, were just um, had a, a more rigorous and uh, a more elaborated uh, training. And, and that's not even talking about the sort of training that tutors get at UWS and other places to tutor online, whether it be putting comments asynchronously into a student's paper to help that student um, think more critically about what they're saying, or whether it's synchronous training, um, you know, via Skype or something else where they're, they're talking to a student online. So um, that kind of online training often comes after students have sort of mastered the face-to-face training. Um, that's the way I'd it like, was. I'd like, to jump, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but I'd like to jump in on that point of the mm-hmm. synchronous and asynchronous methods. Yeah. Do you have any experience or anything that you could say as to how effective or for what particular area, say, an asynchronous commenting is good for? And um, also, then on the other hand, of course, the synchronous, either through a Skype type video conference or in person, of course, um, what that then brings? You know, I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll talk about it. <laughs> um, it you know because your expertise is talk. No, please. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I haven't done the the folks at UWS um, kindly invited me back to do more research on online tutoring. So, but there are some folks who have already done studies on online, but I'm not sure. Well, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think people have so much made claims about whether one type is better than another. Like, um, that's not what you were saying exactly, but like, is asynchronous um, tutoring comments in a paper, is that better for um, a certain place in the writing process than face-to-face tutoring? Um, I think right now they just both meet different exigencies. Like, you know, some students don't have the same sort of connection or ability to, you know, to get online asynchronous tutoring. And so asynchronous works for them. In my mind, what works better would be is is face-to-face tutoring where you can like on a moment to moment basis, you know, um, see each other, uh, talk directly about the paper, um, and, and respond in the moment to what the other person is saying, to have those sort of co-constructed interactions where you're putting text together, perhaps. To me, that just seems better <laughs> in a lot of different ways for scaffolded learning. That's not to say that asynchronous training or asynchronous tutoring, um, you know, isn't worthwhile. I mean, I think it is. I think what needs to be done is that and, and and certainly is too, is that tutors need to be trained in how to make um, effective comments in students' writing. You know, I think the temptation for somebody who's not trained would be to go in and change the sentences, to do editing, basically. And so tutors need to be trained to posit the kind of questions that they would have face-to-face in those comments in the text itself. So I don't have a, a, a really great answer for your question, but I think that's a really ripe area for further research. Um, that, And I think now in our, this time of COVID, it's going to become really clear <laughs> that, that that is the sort of research that's necessary because I just, right now, I... A lot of tutoring is going on online, so I think people yeah, are yeah. more and more I, aware of it. I mean, I mean, you you certainly have gone some way uh, to answering uh, the concern I raised there, and I think our COVID situation is is clearly going to make this even more uh, yeah. import, more important, more urgent. However, there is also the side of it that, um, I mean, face to face one on one tutoring. Clearly has proven itself, and mm-hmm. it has so much to offer in the writing process. And yet, I would, I would wonder if it couldn't be supplemented very effectively with asynchronous written comments, uh, as as maybe say I'm just thinking aloud, uh, aloud here, is uh, maybe say when a project has advanced mm-hmm. and it's reaching some of its final stages. I, I could imagine there the uh, written comment on the page that you look at on your own, at your own pace, mm-hmm. uh, with your own feedback 
could perhaps uh, be just a thing maybe at some, oh my at some points. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're talking about is the ideal. It's like w- where somebody carefully reads your paper, puts um, effectacious comments in it to get to pump you, uh, like pumping questions to get you to think about what you're trying to say at a particular spot or or noting places where they that person didn't understand. And then you can have a conversation, <laughs> like a face-to-face conversation about what was going on in the paper. I mean, that's absolutely the ideal. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that something that tutors are actually trained in doing that they have preparation time or is it generally that the paper is brought to them and it's there that they, they, that they then read it? You know, I asked that of the tutors and the director too. And when they're doing, um, online tutoring, asynchronous tutoring, they get those papers and they return them to the student with comments. So they do get time to think about what they're writing. They don't get it put in front of them. Um, uh, And then, so, well, I lost my train of thought there. Well, uh, I'm actually inter- more interested in the, in the <laughs> that's fine, in the talk situation. Mm-hmm. Say uh, somebody walks into the writing center. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it is it is it is it typical that they've got the paper there and it's there then yeah, yeah, that yeah. the uh, tutor is actually reading it? Yeah. Okay. Th- that's where I was trying to get to. Yeah. So yeah, okay. once in a while, um, they do like a. a a student might make an arrangement to to drop off a paper. Um, most of the time, tutors see the paper for the first time when they're meeting with the student. Thankfully, a lot of writing that students do um, tends to be like shorter papers where the tutor, I saw tutors do this in different ways. Like some tutors would read the whole paper through and the student like reads through with the tutor at the same time, and then they talk about it. Other tutors read um, more line by line and comment as they go. I think the 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 problem with that style of going like sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph often is that the feedback can be very sentence level. So a lot of tutors, and I think a lot of training says, read it through beforehand. But um, I think you're right or uh, in that tutors don't really have the option to be reading through longer papers first and then meet up with the student. And I guess that's one of the benefits of asynchronous tutoring where you do you are able to spend as much time as you want with a longer paper um, and then perhaps meet with a student after. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, one other area that you look into, which is quite interesting, you talk about the diversity of mm-hmm. yeah. uh, University of Wisconsin Superior. And um, one of the p- people who listen to me regularly will know that I um, do. I, I work as uh, the director of the writing center yeah. here in Heidelberg. So I have many German students and um, Heidelberg University itself is very diverse. So I have very many also non-German students. And um, I was wondering if you could say something about the non-native speakers that uh, you covered in your study, what yeah. it was that, say, many of the students who were coming in, and then very interestingly, the trend for uh, such non-native uh, speakers to become tutors themselves, which yeah. seems to be uh, a challenging position to put themselves into. Oh, I just thought that that was fascinating. Yeah. So UWS became far more diverse between 2000 and 2017 by um, really... Um, uh, courting international students. And I was really surprised by the 
just the the number of countries represented in my data. Um, it was great to see. But yeah, I think, you know, anytime you work with somebody who is um, writing and trying to communicate in a language that's not their native language, of course, it depends on their proficiency level. Um, but it also affects the way that you're going to tutor them because some, um, some issues just are inherent in learning a language and it takes time to develop. So, you know, I think one thing that tutors learn about tutoring English is, you know, let's not spend so much time on trying to get articles like A and a and the uh, in the right place. This is part of language development, and it maybe can't be rushed. It takes a certain amount of time to get that kind of level of proficiency in a language. So the tutors in 2017 were receiving more training about working with people whose native language wasn't English, and that was fabulous. Um, and then, I, I mean, to try to talk about the all of the different. Um, kind of interlanguages that occur as somebody is learning English who is a native speaker of, you know, Vietnamese or French or whatever it might be. There were many languages represented. It just, it would require more than one book, certainly. And one thing I wanted to do was kind of dig into that a little bit more. So that article um, on minimal responses looks a bit at native speaker and non-native speaker um, differences. Um, but yeah, the one other thing though is, is about like tutors who are non-native speakers of the language. And this I see as another really ripe area for study because more and more tutors are working in a language that they don't speak natively, that they learned, they have a great proficiency in. And I think they just bring this whole wealth of knowledge and compassion to, to tutoring somebody else who's going through the same thing. Um, and I had one tutor um, in my study who was a native speaker of French who, I mean, obviously was, you know, very fluent in English. Um and I asked her quite I, probably more times than she wanted to, to answer, like about her experience with that. And, uh, you know, she was she's just one person. And I think that this field really needs um, more research on uh, tutors, um, you know, strategies um, and their feelings about working with people who are native speakers of the language when they themselves aren't. Um, I just there's not just. There's just not much done in that area. Yeah, and it's a very important area because yeah. as, as English spreads across the world, um, for instance, uh, here in my case in, mm -hmm. in Heidelberg in, in Germany, pretty much every natural sciences department is taught in English, yeah. uh, definitely after the BA level, and they're all writing and trying then later to publish in English. So we're yeah. dealing with a situation, especially abroad, where tutors are going to kind of have to be non-native speakers. Yeah, exactly so. And so I hope that more people are going to start looking at that very thing. It would be great if some of the yeah. research would, yeah, um, especially- Okay, well, we've, we've announced it here. We need yeah. research in that area. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially from people outside. I mean, so many writing centers or, you know, like, or so much writing center research is sort of North American specific. And I mean, I shouldn't even use North American. It's just US and Canada. <laughs> Mostly U.S. So definitely more research on writing centers in other locations. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Yeah. 
Um, great. One last thing that I, I just can't pass up uh, that I uh, really enjoyed in the book was in chapter two, you get into writing center lore <laughs> and uh, you measure that up wonderfully against the reality. And I wonder if you could give us, um, say, the perception of the writing center and the writing center perception of itself and then how that plays out in the reality, if you could s- sort of sketch that out for us. Oh, well, I mean, I think there's... Um there's been a uh, some research by like Steve Corbett and others that talk real that look um specifically at the sort of rhetoric of writing center lore how writing center researchers talk about themselves and it's it's interesting to see how it plays out so you know one of the big pieces of lore is that uh, tutors shouldn't be directive they shouldn't give directions or tell students what to do um this is like maybe the the biggest piece of writing center lore um But what research shows is that, indeed, tutors uh, are directive. And being directive, um, giving instruction, that is a completely fine thing to do. It has to do with um, where that where that student is in their learning. So students who um, still don't understand a concept um, and the tutor diagnoses this, instruction might be the uh, best approach to simply give a suggestion or even a directive to tell the student what to do, or maybe to offer an explanation. All of those are more directive strategies than for example, um, asking a question, like a pumping question, one that gets the student to think a little bit more. That kind of a strategy is um, better when the student has shown that they have some understanding of the concept or what's going on. So one piece of lore that I think that has been knocked down is because our understanding of the learning process has become more nuanced and more sophisticated. We understand better now that tutors need to diagnose a student's current level of understanding and make their response appropriate in the moment. And that's scaffolding. That's what learning is all about, scaffolding the student's learning up. So part of it might be instruction. It might be directive. Um, and that goes against lore, <laughs> but I think and, and, we're getting past that. Yeah, and what is it though about uh, the uh, writing center that it, it has hung on to such lore? Is there uh, some insecurity involved? Is there an embattledness, as if the writing center had to prove itself somehow? Yeah, I think what you're saying makes good sense because I think writing centers, like I mentioned before, have kind of tried to counter this thought of being um, this perception of being a fix it shop or where students go to get the commas put in the right place. And I think that's one of the reasons that that um, that idea that, oh, tutors shouldn't be directive um, came into being because they were trying to get past this idea that they were simply telling students where to put commas. I mean, to be simplistic about it, of course, there are other things, but, um, and so now I think more and more with more and more empirical research of students writing and with the talk that goes on in writing centers, we have a better understanding of 
the best ways to scaffold students' learning. And sometimes that means being directive. But yeah, I think you're right. It stems from this fear of being perceived as an editing place, as a fix-it shop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, Joe, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank oh. you. Um, I'd like to send you off, though, with uh, one last question. And mm-hmm. um, you've proven already that you're a very hardworking scholar. I mean, <laughs> the articles that here that you've mentioned just in the course of this short interview have shown that uh, things are going on. But please, yeah. if you would, tell us uh, what is it that's cut your interest right now? Well, uh, so I'm just, I've just finished another manuscript. Now this one isn't about writing center talk. It's about a different kind of learning environment. It is about the communication between teachers and students. Um, So it's similar in that way. I'm looking at the interactions that go on between welding teachers and welding students. Um, I'm interested in how teachers and students co-construct embodied knowledge. So knowledge of how to do something. Um, So my study is of three different uh, technical schools and the welding labs in them. But then I'm a welding student myself. I have been for uh, I guess it's going on about two some years. Um, So I'm getting at nighttime, I go, I go to night classes. And so part of the study is my own experience, kind of auto ethnography. I talk about my own experience in learning how to weld. But then I think the most rigorous part of the study is the discourse analysis and also the gestural analysis of um, tutors and students' um, interactions in the welding lab. And that study is similar to the writing center work I've done in that it's I'm interested in the sort of scaffolding process that goes on. Um, so it's not corpus analysis, but it is a, a discourse analysis. But I, I see this, this book that I've just written as a stepping stone to getting back to writing because what I want to study next um, after COVID <laughs> is the sorts of texts that people in the skilled trades use on the job. And my idea there is to study the sorts of texts that get created in skilled trade workplaces in order to maybe build better writing classes for people who are entering vocational jobs like welding and um, automotive mechanics and all sorts of uh, skilled trades like that. So what I want to do is build better writing classes um, for people who are working in the skilled trades and using the work that I've done on writing centers to, to kind of facilitate that. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And uh, speaking of outreach, um, this is clearly extending beyond the university. This is wonderful. That's oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. Um, that is uh, Joe Makowicz and her book, Writing Center Talk Over Time, a Mixed Method Study, was published by Routledge in 2018. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joe. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much. And this is goodbye to all of you. And until next time on Scholarly Communication, goodbye. Thank you.